This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hi and welcome to 3RRR's Radio Therapy. It is great to have you listening in and we have compiled an hour of mind-expanding discussion on brain and behaviour. We're going to begin with the big gun and have Professor Gary Egan from the IRC Centre of Excellence of Integrative Brain Function at Monash University. Gary, when he gets here, is going to <laughs> blow your mind as he muses as to whether we can decipher human brain function using the next generation of imaging technologies. Can we actually read your thoughts? The most beautiful... Dr. Anna Bollocks is going to review the good things being done in the name of good men and the Byzantine enigmatic Dr. SK is in to review Falling Down. You know, the film with Michael Douglas from 1992, it's a psychodrama of a man imploding under the external pressures of modern day life. We are also blessed with the prescient grace of Dr. Sigmund McZiff and that's enough for us. Kent the Magnificent has tamed the beast that is the panel and me the tall man. Come on, listen in. It's going to be a gas here on 3RRR's Radiotherapy. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. No pills gonna cure my ill. I got a bad case of loving you. <laughs> ah, good morning. Everybody, don't you love this show? I, I love it, <laughs> but I haven't been anywhere that was a gas for 35 oh, years. Really? I was going to say you'd be stoked, <laughs> stoked you'd be stoked if you'd listened in. I heard somebody use that word the other day, stoked, and stoked, yep. it transported me 40 years yeah. <laughs> in an instant. I was equally, equally bemused by your introduction because I have no real sense of what the word Byzantine actually means, but it has connotations of extreme age. No, 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 it doesn't. It, it actually comes from the it. It's more of a, akin to... It's a synonym for uh, en, enigmatic, really. Oh, OK. Yeah. Paradoxical. Yes. Mm. So it's it's very learned. It's, yeah. I've, I've learned something already. Yeah. Yeah. No, well, I actually was... I had my theosaurus open with... Theosaurus? <laughs> theosaurus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Put like a synonym for theosaurus. Dinosaurus. And just what, prescient grace, yeah. my yes. little names. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> prescient grace. No, you can tell I hit the dictionary this morning. You sure did. Yeah. Yeah. I thought I'd introduce four new words um, mm-hmm. because I was doing that with uh, one of my... Uh, younger children during the week just increasing their vocabulary from from that sort of grunting that they normally do, <laughs> trying to get another word in amongst the grunts. How'd they yeah. go with Byzantine? Did they yeah, no, Byzantine, they, they lost me. <laughs> They're trying to work that in a casual conversation yeah, at school, yeah, are right, they? That's right. Yeah, get themselves six. beat up. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, I think that idea is Byzantine. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, look... Um, We've got ketchup. I've got ketchup. I've got ketchup. I've, I've, I've got, I'm just reading the paper oh. this morning, tall man. Mm. An article by Andrew Masterson, mm. Masterson in The Age. You know, with, with all of this stuff about drugs in sports. So he's uh, had a look at what happens, you know, drugs in sports where trying to achieve certain levels of, uh, of excellence on the sporting field. But he's looked at the, the role of, uh, of uh, substances in 
those who, who are on the field of war mm. and uh, terrorists, for example, those in, uh, in Paris um, who committed the atrocities recently. And um, uh, so, you know, how, do, how is it that people behave in that sort of way? Are they, in fact, under the influence of some sort of drugs? And uh, it was reported that the... Um, the the IS terrorists in Paris were under the form under the influence of an amphetamine called Captagon, which is apparently widely available in Syria. Now it may or may not have been the case, and I'm sure that we're going to find out a little bit more about that. But historically, he's gone back and he's had a look at the use of drugs in warfare, and it dates back to ancient Greece and uh, the use of psychedelics in religious. Uh, ritual and uh, and opioids in medicine, and so mili- military use was thought to be distinctly possible. Now the Vikings were very good at this, and you can imagine, you know, the, yeah. the sort of violence, you know, rape, yeah. plundering, and yeah. pillage. Yeah. Um, without that, without racially stereotyping, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. Um, uh, there was a particular sect of Norse warriors who were in the habit of eating highly intoxicating fly agaric mushrooms before going into battle. Now, the the red and white spotted mushrooms, Amanita muscaria, familiar from thousands of children's books, Hmm. illustrations, and they induce a powerful mix of strength, rage, and imperviousness to pain. Hmm. And, Tolman, you'd be familiar with that. All of that. And the mushroom eaters, according to some sources, fought clad only in bear skin or in the Norse bar sark leading to the development of the term berserk ah. there you go ah. so bar sark berserk so some Norse scholars question whether fly agaric was the precise intoxicant used on the grounds that its consumption often also gives rise to hallucinations, sexual incite, sexual excitement, and explosive diarrhea. And, well, I mean, <laughs> that's what a it, wonderful trifecta. Hallucinations, exactly. sexual excitement, explosive it's, diarrhea. Exactly. But they, you, know, you can imagine the Italian army, though, going into battle. They always well, had a, something. No, short black. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they all sat down and had a latte or a short black before they well, engaged. On, on that point, actually, Mick, if the origin of the term Dutch courage relates to the habits of Dutch soldiers around the turn of the last century fortifying themselves with gin before they went into battle. Absolutely. And there's, the, I mean, this article, this is quite a scholarly article. I mean, it looks at the very high rates of use of substances by soldiers. I mean, in the Second World War on both sides, um, and in the Vietnam War in particular, it was absolutely rampant. And the, the story goes that um, the military authorities, the leaders, um, have in fact either tacitly or overtly encouraged this. Now, you've got, you, you have long periods where soldiers go without sleep, and so amphetamine use is very, very common. And then to come down from the amphetamines, um, increasingly there's, uh, there's use of benzodiazepines and other, other sleep-inducing drugs. I, I believe amphetamines were actually first synthesised by German scientists during the First World War in order to give their troops more alertness and aggression. Well, so it's a government-sponsored program. To yeah, and, and, and it's, n- it's not at all surprising. And so from the military then into broader society. I wonder if we could uh, get somebody to design a raft of drugs for our politicians to increase intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I couldn't resist. I couldn't yeah. resist. Well, there you go. So, Look, all right. 
I'm sure. Now, I've, I've, uh, without you know, trying to create too many conspiracy theories, got no doubt that um, there are some aspects of uh, military uh, research where they're absolutely actively investigating what are the best drugs to have their their soldiers on. But it's more worrying than that. It's moved into the robotics phase, I think. Mm. That's what they're going to be doing in the future. You'll be fighting via robot. Well, there have been articles in the press recently warning about the rise of these killer yeah. robots and yeah. how they must be put down now before <laughs> they become right. Skynet. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, don't we live in a great world? Look, on a lighter side, and it's not often we do a, a, a fanvert, uh, but I've got to say, I went... I went and watched Hugh Jackman at Rod Laver Arena do the From Broadway to Oz show on Friday night. And it was sensational. They were from... <laughs> honestly, if, if we had cams, the looks I'm now getting... <laughs> like, are you kidding me? <laughs> You're looking at somebody who's going to see ACDC next oh, Sunday. OK. Yeah. Well, I tell you, if you like musical theatre, if you like musical theatre, oh, boy... It was, Is it uh, finished? Is it still going? Uh, that was a Saturday night, I think. Last night was the last night. I think it goes up to Sydney now and might be going off over, offshore. But it was fantastic. It was good fun. It's pretty cool. No, no, it was. It was, uh, you know, Oklahoma, Les Mis, or, you know, Singing in the Rain, Gene Kelly, yeah. Peter Allen. It was all there. Appeals to a certain demographic. <laughs> it's all Is there anything you'd like to tell us, tall man? <laughs> I'm a sensitive man. I like, I, okay, I can't help it. I love musical theatre. So do I. I think it's fabulous. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I really love it. I, I unabashedly, unashamedly love... Excuse Gen me, boys, do you have to apologise <laughs> for this? No, no, you're I'm allowed not to be. You're allowed yeah. to be. Well, see, this, this just goes straight the, into our next segment. Break. This just... goes into our next segment because... No, I, watching Gene Kelly dance and Fred Astaire, that's why, as a 12-year-old boy, I took myself off to ballet school <laughs> <laughs> and did ballet and mm. tap dance because I wanted to be mm. Gene Kelly. The look, Billy Elliot. The yeah, looks, the looks right, you often it? get around the table when you say that sort of thing are pure encrypted jealousy sometimes <laughs> because there are a lot of blokes I'll who would looking, kill <laughs> to be free enough and playful enough to have the guts to get up and dance. So don't worry about uh, it. No, don't no, worry about I lo- it. I loved it. I really did love it. So, well, look, actually, this is t- terrific because we've created the environment <laughs> for our next segment, which... Um, <clears throat> which uh, we're going to uh, come back. We're, you know, As you know out there, we've been talking about good men. This is a c- constant foundation theme for this show and we've been running it on and off now for over... Two years. Two years. Mm. Uh, and we're going to sort of review the scorecard. Yep. We're going to have a, a, a thought about it and, and talk about it in some more detail. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Yeah, we're back. Um, good men. How are we going over there, you two? Well, we thought, um, McZiff and I thought that we'd have a bit of a review, a little conversation about how things are going, given that it's been a huge week in the world of male-female relationships and domestic violence. And uh, and also it's uh, coming at the end of, a, as you say, a few years where on this program we've been talking about what makes a good man and um, what is the root cause of uh, male aggression and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it's been a, a fascinating week, I think. A lot of really good things have happened uh, and and 
I think we're going to, to talk about how we see the the lie of the land, Mixif. You, you probably see it in a slightly different way to I, me, or, or share some of the ideas, but some different one. No, I'm, I'm not sure that I see it uh, any differently. But uh, I think that this is um, this is like a hydra. This is a very complicated mm. issue, mm. and um, we were talking in the green room before about uh, what's been happening this week. So we've had um, we've had Malcolm Turnbull. Yeah. Uh, speak very eloquently yeah. on the matter. We've had the former superintendent of the Victoria Police, Ken Lay, give a highly emotional and I thought wonderful speech. Um, very, very moving. Uh, we've had other yeah. other talks. We've uh, had the two-part documentary by Sarah Ferguson on the ABC, which um, if you haven't seen it, for goodness sake, get it on iView. Watch it on iView. It's absolutely compelling. We've also had a Q and A, um, a special Q and A about uh, this issue of domestic violence, male, male, particularly male violence directed towards women. And um, there's been there's been a lot said, a lot said. Um, and interestingly, one of the things that um, that we did discuss in the green room was: uh, is this? I mean, everybody says that uh, that the um, violence towards women transcends all boundaries in society, that it's not limited to any one particular demographic. Um, but it's, I think that much of what has been said uh, is preaching to the converted, that uh, there are people who would never, have never contemplated that it's not ever been on their radar to behave in, in this particular way. And yet it is a pattern which it is so endemic we have a very major problem in our society and uh, um, we yeah, th- th- I think there there are a number of prongs to the approach to the future but um, I, I, I think that we, we, we've got to be very very careful mm-hmm. that we're not just left sloganeering yes. that there's there's an, an actual translation mm-hmm. uh, into meaningful changes within our society well, one of the emphasis emphasis i think one of the emphases emphases thank you that have um changed i think in the last few weeks and months that i can pick up and it certainly was underpinned by turnbull and lay's speeches over the last few weeks is that it does seem to be following the line that we, we've been taking in many ways over the last couple of years which is that this is a men's issue this is not a women's issue and i think this is a men's issue this is how do men become men without falling into the trap of um, becoming overly sexist, becoming violent, becoming aggressive and losing out on all the good things you have when you are uh, pairing and partnering with women on an equal footing, when we all agree that there are good things to be gained. This may be where we slightly diverge in opinion. Um, By calling it a men's issue and given the fact that men relate with women all the time and the complexity of the interaction what happens in an intimate relationship is so complex that to simply to 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 make it a black and white men's issue really i i I think it in in a way it it, it removes women from a role in the resolution of this issue even though it may be fundamentally an issue that men bring to the relationship i I may have misidentified what i said i agree with i agree with what you just said then completely it is a completely mutual issue but up until now men haven't taken it as any part of their issue i see okay so So perhaps what i'm uh, you're you're right is of course it's a it's of course it's an issue for both genders but 
it finally seems to me that, that men are looking at it as something that they have to address amongst themselves, and you know, as even as bystanders, as people who are functioning with women across society, it's not just something that women have to worry about when they go into refuge, which is where it's been for a long time. Men are starting to say, look, this is something that we all have to look at, our underlying sexism, our underlying aggression, and where do we as bystanders, as men, as fathers, factor into this... So, yes, I, I agree with what you're saying. Yeah. So, so, so do, do, do you think, though, that there's any value... Um, I, I'm trying to... When I'm thinking through this issue, I'm trying to get it back to a single point. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm posing the question... Firstly, I understand men need to... Get, we need to get men's attention, and that's what's mm-hmm. been happening. And by saying, look, you've got an issue, you've got to address it, that's getting their attention. I get that part of it. Mm-hmm. But if we actually track it right back to the point source where the fire began, mm-hmm. it begins with violence. Mm-hmm. And that's not gender... Spe- that's that's more than gender-specific. There is violence. I mean, you know, we fight wars by men. Mm-hmm. Um, violence in society, mm-hmm. I think, probably, you know, our tendency, that primal tendency we have to be violent and aggressive, the hunter-gatherer, that sort of notion in our primitive psyche... And this is why when we started discussing this, we were talking about um, the anthropology of the behaviour. You know, how far back in our primitive DNA does this behaviour trait go? It was there for a reason. That is, it promoted survival. It helped select us for survival. So it comes back to... Uh, is, can it be just thought of as an issue of aggression and violence and does that diminish us, um, diminish the discussion in any way? Well, I, I, there was another program this week <clears throat> which I think speaks to this issue and we've, we've been talking about what is the cause of violence amongst young men and, and, and specifically that's, that's the issue that we've been looking at, good men. And um, another year, another time we can look at violent women. I agree, this would be a really productive conversation because there are a lot of violent women. That, we have a female prison that's full of violent females so there's no but we've been looking at violent men so we have been focusing on that issue and mm. uh, there was another program this week called call me dad on um mm. on uh, abc which is also on iview very interesting to look at that if you and you're looking about the sourcing you say what is the point that's driving this this was a story about a group a men's behavioral change group i believe it was in sydney although i could be wrong on that and uh the two therapists who are running it and it focused on three of the men who are attending the group and their progress through the group now of course it's anecdotal being n of three uh and it's um and i'm not making any statement about the uh you know the value or otherwise of the of the program itself because it's you couldn't guess from that um that program but what is of interest is all three men who were talking were there because they had uh had had to bash their you know partners and had separated from their partners and bashed their children and they were talking initially when they came into the group they were talking about in terms of this is what i do and in, in very uh, assertive macho stances they didn't understand what was wrong they didn't understand why people were blaming them and they thought they were behaving in the way men should behave um, um, after 10 weeks of therapy, each of them was re-looking at that and saying, and was able to then explore that they themselves had been traumatised as children, they had been exposed to violence as a child, they had had very poor role modelling from um, males to, to learn how to manage their uh, strength and their um, and their roles in society. And it was a, it's a fascinating little uh, vignette of what 
I think I've seen all my professional... Because I think 80% of the people I've ever looked after in psych have been men. I've always had an interest in men's health. Mm. And when you sit down with men who have been violent, that's what you find underneath. They don't want to be in this situation. They don't want to lose their families. They don't want to be estranged from their kids. They want to be different. And so many of them have struggled because they've had trauma of their own. And you get underneath this aggressive layer and what you find is distress, um, powerlessness... Uh, sadness, anxiety, and then a whole string of other things like uh, illiteracy and numeracy, unemployment, all that sort of stuff. But so many of these guys require preventative treatment before they get into this sphere, in in my view. It's so much of it is underpinned by real sadness and, mm. and trauma. You know, that, that uh, there's some parallels with the second part of Sarah Ferguson's documentary, which looked at the men who were, men who were in jail as a result of, uh, of domestic violence. And whilst it's, it's, it's difficult to generalise as to the, the behavioural patterns, but there was something which I thought did emerge, and that was men who, in relationships, felt a great need to, a great need to control yeah. their partner. And why would a man need to control his partner? Well, obviously, there's going to be some sort of self-esteem issue. There's a fear of, of loss. There's a fear of, of uh, unfaithfulness, which may, might be real or imagined. And then there are the behaviors which the men adopt to control their partner. And so any sense of freedom or liberty um, in their partner is curtailed by either manipulative behavior, other forms of controlling behavior, the threat of violence, intimidation, and then violence itself. Ultimately, there is this sort of to-and-fro pattern until finally the woman leaves, she ends up in a refuge, she pursues some some form of legal uh, intervention. And these men are often... I mean, when, when you're seeing people in therapy, everyone comes along with a compelling narrative. They have their own story. So you listen to, if, if you, if you are listening to someone who's been directly traumatized, they have their story and it's fundamentally and profoundly compelling. When you talk to a perpetrator, they have a pattern of excuses, prevarications. So it's slightly different. They see things a little bit differently. No, I didn't. She fell. That, that, it was, there's always, there's, there, they go off, uh, slightly on a tangent. And it's, it's very difficult to engage these people. But once they are, the story will invariably come tumbling out. They are going to be men who have had very poor role models. They've had absent fathers, violent fathers, controlling fathers, mothers who've tried to perhaps be compliant uh, and to tolerate the stress within the home. There's been substance abuse. Uh, um, often there's been head injuries um, mm. in these young men, recurrent head injuries, exposing themselves to risk uh, substance abuse themselves, very, very poor impulse control. And they, they come to relationships without the resourcefulness, without the emotional resilience to be able to cope with the ordinary stresses and strains of being in a long-term intimate relationship. We all know that being in a relationship is not just a bowl of strawberries and cream. It is it can be hard work. And if you don't have the skills, then you are going to resort to the very behaviors that you have been exposed to. It doesn't matter what you're told to do. It's what you see, hear, 
feel, smell, the sorts of things that we grow up with, the, the experiences that become, they're like full thickness burns. They get in under the surface and they affect the way that we relate, the way that we react. And so we bring this to the relationships that we have. Can, can I just, again, I, I, like to de- I like to try and deconstruct these things. But if, if you look at the arc of a man's life... Um, and you you look at when they're most likely to be aggressive and violent, and then you notice that as they age, it's much less likely because two things happen. They become physically less adept. They lose their strength in an outward, real fashion. But also hormonally they change and their testosterone levels drop. I don't agree with you. Can I buy into it on this point at all, man? I mean... Uh McZiff alluded a minute ago to men with a history of head injury who have poor impulse control. You know, the commonest head injury that a young male sustains is a frontal lobe injury. Mm. And the frontal lobe, amongst other things, helps us control our impulses. And I think one of the main reasons behind male violence peaking in the late teens, early 20s, is that the frontal lobes of men don't actually develop properly and settle down until 25, compounded by a society that allows... 18 to 25 year olds to drink alcohol which exerts most of its effects through further inhibition of the frontal lobe so i think there's a there's an organicity tied up in all of this that you've uh, alluded to but which is really central to the problem as well and then on, on top of all that i think you just described brilliantly the whole you know the the avenues that, that converge all of you on top of this once these problems arise there's also this strict code that boys learn before they're seven that if you do find yourself in trouble if you do find yourself struggling thou shalt not look like you need help thou shalt not look like you need you see you can't seek help you can't go to your friend and say or or there's some men can some men can but a lot of men cannot open up to other men and say i'm struggling i don't know what's happening at home but my marriage is in the toilet i don't know what's going on there's this competitive invulnerability that is so codified for young men so early across across society that it's i think for me for me it's more oppressive I, i actually think it's more oppressive and more invisible for young males than it almost anything I've ever seen oppressed females. <laughs> and I know that's probably a weird thing to say, but I, th- I think seriously the oppression that young boys feel so, to be- become men is overwhelming. So, uh, And I can see, even in my own life, the tendency that you have... You would. I mean, I only have sons, so I don't know what happens with daughters. But you are much more likely when you see your child in, who's, you know... 8, 9, 10, 11, who's upset and teary, you're more likely to say, get a hold of yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you, you know, I, I know that as an innate tendency is to say, I don't want you to overtly demonstrate that you're vulnerable mm. and that you're upset mm. by crying. Because you know it will have consequences in the playground or somewhere Correct. else down the track. Correct. So mm. that that's in the effort to shield him from what I know might mm. come his way if that's exposed. Mm. And in fact, 
has come his way. And one day he might be talking about a, a Jackman concert and might get looks from other people. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to dance. I want to dance. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. And it's, it's just pervasive. And I, I feel for young men so much for the struggle they have to yeah. find their feet. I really do. Yeah. And it's But I mean, but so this is, I'm saying this, I, I'm being quite open about this because, you know, I would regard that I would be sensitive to these sort of things. Mm. But, I, you know, there's this balance that you're trying to protect your child mm. in the world and make them resilient, mm. tolerant mm. and intelligent, emotionally intelligent. Mm. And how do you best do that? Because him getting bullied in the playground is not going to assist his development in this process. So, yes, you want them to... Hang on, I'm on call. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You, you want you want them to be you want them to be strong. So what you're asking then is to what are the other tools that young men can use other than be, you know squaring up, putting a chest out, saying you know you're but, looking but that, at me and the, but that gets to the very definition of strength. Mm, absolutely, and strength to be able to to talk your way out of a problem, strength to be able to identify the feelings that you have, strength to be able to negotiate, to articulate. That's, that's real strength. Mm-hmm. It's not strength to be able to beat up someone who's physically weaker than you. It's not strength to be able to intimidate or terrify someone of the opposite gender who is physically not as powerful as you. That's not strength. That's weakness and cowardice and that is that's an overreaction. That is a denial of of that's a denial of weakness. It's all very well to talk about strength in that sense, but I think it all gets back to culture change. And Toolman made the point of, you know, in the culture of the school ground, you know, having verbal skills to talk yourself out of a situation isn't of much use in a school ground milieu where the accepted language is uh, I don't know. physical strength. I don't know if that's true. I think if the, if the, the schools have got an incredibly important role to play here about changing culture, about teaching the interpersonal skills about teaching respect, about teaching communication skills, these are just as important as the three R's. If you don't have that, you've got the jungle. I think you'll find we're in agreement. I was talking about the importance of culture change. Uh, Look, again, uh, I I, I don't think we can uh, uh, give this to the education system. Uh, this is, uh, my, I, I have very different views of what education is to provide your children. I, I find that you know I have seventy percent responsibility for my children's education, and the structure of the education system provides the rest of the thirty percent. Um, they are not equipped. Uh, in in primary schools they don't have the resources i don't think they even have the training really i mean they're trying not not because of lack of effort there's no doubt about that but the resources and the focus of primary school education which is where it would have to happen and then transition into the teenage years i just don't see that that's in it's going to take too long to change that sort of bureaucracy to focus on these issues do you agree with uh, both Turnbull and Lay in their speeches this week that said what we can do, all of us have a part to play, every we, one of us, yeah, right. and particularly what we have to make sure uh, happens is that respect, and I guess this plays into what you're saying about males and females and violence, that disrespect for other people underpins yes. it's violence. Yes, it's not, it's not gender specific. It's disrespect of somebody else's mm. difference, 
or their mm. uh, their personality. Uh, you know, it, it, it's about... Uh, uh, my tendency, and I don't know whether... I, I might be wrong-minded and you can point this out to me, but I want to take it away from it being an intergender problem. I, I think this is a human problem where we disrespect other people. They, you know... It happens to be that largely it can be female at the moment. Well, that it, is that is the case. Yes. So I, mean, I understand I'm, that, especially when you look at the world. I don't. Sure. I'm not talking about you know maybe the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. <laughs> I'm talking about if you look at the world, there are millions of women who are enslaved in their houses as we speak. There are millions of women who are being treated, have no education, no access to health care, and so I mean there. I think so, on a global scale, it has to remain a gendered issue for, for me slightly because. There are millions of women who don't have a voice mm. and millions of men who do not even begin to possess the level of femi- feminism that you guys have. They don't even begin to possess the level of emotional acceptance and tolerance mm. for the people that you guys have. So I, I do think, I, I understand what you're saying, all humans have, need to respect other people, all humans are capable of violence, I completely agree. But on a global, on a global scale, yeah. there still is a gender issue that I would love not to be there, but I, I, I can't see that it's not there. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. That's that's how I guess how I look at it as a gender thing. Yeah. I, okay. I mean, I I, I get that. I I I just I, the other problem that we're going to run into over the next several years is this message is going to become uh, we're going to become desensitised, mm. if not already. Uh, the, so this it has to we have there has to be novel approaches because otherwise it's going to be like you know the latest uh, atrocity uh, committed you know we are desensitising our society towards this and so this is going to have to be a clever sustained mm. culture shift mm. and I don't know if I look historically you always look to history to try and inform the present and the future I can't see where this has ever happened in modern society where there has been a a, a massive culture shift about some attitude Gee, uh, we're about to legalise gay marriage don't you, you don't think that's a no shift? no I don't think it's a I, I don't I don't I don't think it's a it's not the sort of cult this is this is slavery, slavery in America yeah, yeah. Now this is this goes beyond this. Go. I think this is bigger than all of those. Mm. You know, you can conflate all of those together. Yeah, yeah. I think this is much, much bigger. This is about this is about something very primitive and very sure. ingrained, and it's in our DNA, yeah. and it's in the way our brains are wired and the hormonal milieu that our brains find themselves in. We're, we're going to continue this in a different vein. But uh, still a fascinating vein because this movie falling down, I think it's got one great line from Richard Duvall right at the very end, which we might repeat on air. If you can remember it. I can. (laughs) (laughs) Three, triple, ah. You're listening to 3RRR and we're rocking on through this show. So we've just covered the, the good men giving a scorecard and now we're going to go on to this film Falling Down, which is London Bridge is Falling Down. That was a recurring motive throughout the film as well, but I guess the title is subtext for what's happening to the character and his disintegration as he goes throughout the film. But uh, there is repeated reference to London Bridge as well. Mm. 
I was prompted to do this film for a, a couple of reasons. Uh, first, I was I was overwhelmed by a cavalcade of whimsy the other day. I realised we've been doing this show for 21 years now, and this was actually mm. the first film that I reviewed wow. on radiotherapy back in 1995. I figured uh, those people who are... You're about 11. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish. Those people who heard that original review were probably now listening to 3AW, so I thought, <laughs> I, could, thought I could get away with a repeat. And, and we're still here. What is that? say about us? That we've never been able to land a gig on commercial radio. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps the second thing that brought this film to mind was uh, about uh, ten days ago I spent a horrible three hours stuck in traffic on the Monash oh. trying to get to the airport oh. and I remember being f filled with uh, feelings of rage about the fact that somebody had died on the freeway and that this was delaying me. <laughs> and it took me back to the, the central dilemma that uh, we meet the Michael Douglas character in this film. Uh, <laughs> we see him stuck on a, on a freeway in LA in a crappy car on a stinking hot day he's surrounded by idiots in other cars and school buses <laughs> and you can see his temperature rising literally until finally he just abandons his car in the middle of this traffic jam and walks off uh, being abused by other drivers as he does too and i'm sure that deep down inside of us all of us have wanted to do that when we're stuck in traffic is just to get out and leave the thing behind we learn that the Michael Douglas character in this film is he's relatively recently divorced, uh, but his ex-wife has a restraining order out against him because of issues relating to family violence, or the threat of family violence at least. We also learn that he's a, a laid-off defence contractor. He's a victim of the downturn in the early 1990s. And uh, a large part of his identity appears to be tied up in his job because his licence plate... Uh, is D-Fens, D-F-E-N-S, and that's the name by which the character is referred to really throughout throughout the film rather than personalised with a name. You know, his identity is in what he does. After he abandons his car, other drivers yell out to him, what are you doing? And his only response is, I'm going home. He's trying to get home to Venice Beach where his ex-wife and daughter lives because it's his daughter's birthday and he wants to be there for his daughter's birthday. His ex-wife doesn't want him there, though. You know, there's a restraining order in place. She calls the police on a couple of occasions throughout the film because he has contacted her and told her that she's, he's coming home and he's living in, she's living in fear of this man. The audience empathises with him to a degree however we certainly empathise with him when he's stuck in traffic we also empathise with him during his first confrontation with a secondary character in the film he's trying to get some change for the phone he goes into a, a grocery store owned by a korean man and he becomes outraged when the shop's proprietor charges him what presumably in america in 1993 was an outrageous sum of money for a can of coke 85 cents and he perceived that it was being ripped off he was also uh, incredibly annoyed by the fact that the shopkeeper just wouldn't give him change for the phone. And, you know, we've all had that experience in shops as well. We, we walk in, we, we need change for a certain reason, and they say, sorry, we can't give you change without making a purchase. So we empathise with his predicament. We also empathise with him when he grabs the baseball bat off the shop owner and basically trashes the store and, uh, you know, breaks down the displays and things. He then pays what he considers to be a reasonable price for the Coke and leaves the store. His next confrontation is with some gang members in a deserted park. 
they threaten to assault him for his briefcase. He beats them up with a baseball bat and acquires a flick knife, so he's becoming progressively better armed. Uh, later on, these same gang members try and track him down and exact revenge, and they attempt a drive-by shooting. They don't shoot him, but they manage to wing a couple of bystanders and, and in so doing, crash their car, which allows Michael Douglas to acquire a cache of automatic weapons. And he actually shoots one of these uh, gang members in the leg to teach him a lesson as well, and the audience empathises with that act because random violence has been attempted against the main character. He's exacting what he considers to be a reasonable modicum of revenge. His arsenal increases. Uh, he becomes aware that the police are looking for him at, at some point during the narrative and takes ref refuge in an army surplus store which is run by a neo-Nazi who has a police scanner and has actually come to view the Michael Douglas character as a bit of a hero or a resistance fighter, if you like. So the, the neo-Nazi identifies with him and Michael Douglas is so horrified that somebody with neo-Nazi attitudes could identify with him that he actually kills the guy and mounts him in his own display case full of Nazi memorabilia. He, he wanders into a fast food restaurant at 11.33, where the fast food restaurant has stopped serving breakfast at 11.30. And this is another one of life's little frustrations. He tries to order breakfast, only to be told that we've stopped serving breakfast, that there's still breakfasts clearly on display there. He also uh, becomes outraged when what he's sold in the fast food restaurant doesn't match its description. And again, we've all had this experience as well. We look at the lovely picture of a nice juicy burger on the menu display board and we get a flattened, horrible, greasy piece of food in return. I'm looking at you, Hungry Jacks, <laughs> at this experience last week. He... he uh, <laughs> Using a bazooka that he acquires from the neo-Nazi, he blows up a road construction crew that was obstructing his way and delaying his, his passage home. The, the tone of the film I found, found disturbing because it's played almost for comedy. Certainly some of the dialogue, particularly that in the fast food restaurant, it's overtly humorous, juxtaposed against these acts of ultraviolence, if you like. And the, the mayhem that Michael Douglas initiates in the film is, of course, investigated by police. And the audience is forced to become progressively less comfortable with his point of view because we learn through the police investigation that there is a history of family violence or threats of family violence against his ex-wife who lives in morbid fear of him. Since losing his job, he's been living with his mother and his mother lives in morbid fear of him as well. She describes how uh, he sits in silence during meals and she's constantly afraid that he will just blow his top and lose it. Despite having been laid off his job as a defence contractor some one month previously, he's been unable to accept the loss of face that this loss of work and role would entail, and he's maintained the facade throughout of leaving home each day with a packed lunch and pretending to his mother mm -hmm. that he's going to work. So failure is unacceptable to him. Failure is unacceptable to him, and he can't accept that in any circumstance he is wrong. And, you know, I think this is probably a central issue in relation to male violence as well. Uh, it relates to this lack of ability for men to back down and admit that they are at Absolutely. fault. If they did, uh, escalation might be diverted, but if they don't, they're really left with no alternative but to continue building on uh, a set of problematic behaviours. This is revealed in his film by his insistence on, as he put it, going home. It's no longer his home to see his ex-wife and daughter. Uh, the wife is clearly terrified of him and it, the, the eventual 
confrontation uh, in the film, he's uh, committing suicide by cop. You know, he finally perhaps has a, a moment of realisation whilst viewing some old family videos that his attitude has at times been less than ideal towards uh, his ex-wife and in this moment of insight decides to escalate the confrontation with the police officer to, uh, to be shot. Uh, and thus leave the insurance that would be uh, payable to his daughter. So he pulls a, a water pistol on the cop and forces him in, into shooting him. But, you know, his, his sense of disbelief uh, about his own actions is highlighted in the final scene where uh, you know, when the policeman finally tracks him down and pulls a gun on him, he says, I, I don't believe this, I'm the bad guy here. You know, after all of the horrendous things that he's done and killing and shooting people, he, uh, he can't accept that he's... Uh, the one with the problem. The problem is it belongs to everybody around him, but not to him himself. 30 years later, would he have joined the Tea Party? The Tea Party? He was probably a founding member. It was probably Mr Sarah Palin, perhaps. But, you know, from a psychiatric perspective, you know, it's, it's interesting to see what's been written about this film on the internet, and they, they tend to more frame it in terms of uh, male disenfranchisement and uh, white man's rage. You know about the the disenfranchisement of the the white middle class during the economic downturn, but in psychiatric terms, you know he's got a number of traits that would be consistent with a personality disorder, and it's probably uh, a narcissistic type of personality disorder, where some of the key features revolve around firstly a sense of entitlement, a belief that others should make way for your own particular needs, and we see this in his interactions in the traffic jam with the Korean shop owner, with his interactions in the burger joint, for example. Uh, uh, narcissistic personality is also characterised by a decreased ability to empathise with the needs for others. You know, the only point of view that you can adopt is your own. Uh, narcissists are also either unaware or uncaring of the impact that their own behaviours have on others. And this is well illustrated in the film in, in relation to his lack of ability to recognise that his ex-wife lives in, in morbid fear of him. So technically he's, he probably meets diagnostic criteria for a, a narcissistic personality disorder, but I think the film is very clever in the way that it plays up to the audience's own narcissistic traits. We all have a degree of narcissism within our beings. We all have a need for, you know, our own needs to be fulfilled and, you know, we empathise with others, but at times we prioritise our own needs over theirs. And I think what the film does, particularly in the first half of it, is it sets the audience up to identify with Michael Douglas's narcissistic needs as the character and then it turns that empathy on its head in the second half of the film when we realise that, no, this guy's actually pathological. He's not just the everyman who has been uh, put in a series of uh, situations which have caused his behaviours and his attitudes to, to escalate. So it does make the audience examine their own attitudes to these behaviours. As a, as a movie critic, are there parallels between the lead character in Clockwork Orange with this guy in a funny way? Look, I think uh, the character in the Clockwork Orange was probably antisocial and narcissistic. You know, he, he gloried in his violence, did Alex in A Clockwork Orange. Uh, this guy didn't go out of his way to create violence. But when confronted with opposition, and it's from his perspective unreasonable opposition, 
He, he tries to talk his way out of certain situations, but when that approach fails, he has no hesitation in raising, raising the bar. I think Alex in A Clockwork Orange more gloried in the process and was driven by seeking out violence as a form of entertainment. Mm. I don't think uh, it was entertainment to the Michael Douglas character in this case. But a very interesting film that makes us uncomfortably examine our own attitudes to violence and frustration. And as I said, you know, I felt really uncomfortable being stuck in traffic on the Monash, feeling mm. what in retrospect was totally unreasonable rage mm-hmm. at the misfortune of the poor person who'd had the misfortune to, to die on the freeway that morning and hold me up. Mm-hmm. So it was an, an, an affront to my own narcissism, tall man. Mm-hmm. And on that point, we'll let you all think about that while we go and gather Gary Egan and we're going to come back and talk about the new generation of brain imaging. <laughs> You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to 3RRR's Radio Therapy, and we have the very relaxed Gary Egan coming. You're doing November, aren't you, Gary? I am doing November. Yeah. November. Yeah. yeah. It's, yes. uh, I'm looking for donations too. I'm still short really? of my okay. target. So. <laughs> With a moustache like that, it's going to stay short, I've got to tell you. Um, <laughs> now, listen, you are out at the ARC Centre of Imaging and Brain Function at uh, Monash. Yes, that's right. And you... So we're going to talk about next generation. I think what we need to do is define what we're going to discuss. So the first thing is, what sort of imaging modalities are available to look at brain function? Well, the two most common are magnetic resonance imaging, MRI. So many people may have had an MRI scan. Yeah. And the other is uh, CT or computer tomography. Yeah. And these are both radiology techniques. And a, a more, I guess, complex one is positron emission tomography, yep. PET scanning, which is particularly good for looking at molecular function. Right. So you can, so that that method of analysis lets you look at brain function. It's based on the uptake of various molecules that are used in energy metabolism. So if a right. cell's active, it takes up the molecule yep. and it lights right. up. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Do you combine the two? Do you combine the? Well, we do digitally or electronically. We put together the images. Yeah. And that's to gain advantage of the molecular function you mentioned, plus the structure or anatomy that comes from MRI or CT scans. Right, okay. So what's the next generation of imaging going to be? Well, the next generation is very exciting. It's all about actually doing the two scans simultaneously. Right. So we now have a scanner, which is a combined MRI PET scanner. And this right. is terrifically exciting. We're in fact, getting the first one at Monash University next month the first research dedicated mri pet scanner right and how many of these machines are there in the world at the moment um probably about 50 or so right and so so what's this going to allow you to do well um i think the first thing is it'll it'll really make um studies where people find it difficult to get into a scanner and sometimes they have to go and do two scanners yes two scans in in two different scanners they'll actually be able to do just one scan so that now, will help us enormously. If we had uh, Julian Savalescu here, who's a, who comes in and uh, chats with us on a regular basis when he's out from Oxford, he'd be wanting to talk to you about, can I put somebody in that scanner that's an MRI PET scanner and ask them a moral deci- uh, question and find out where they're thinking? Yes, I've actually chatted with Julian about that. <laughs> I, thought, um, I thought he'd be on to it. <laughs> yeah, look, it is a terrifically interesting question to pose. 
I think over the last 10 years or probably 15 years, the ability to ask very specific questions like that and identify brain areas that are responding is, is increasing, but we're still not really at the point yet yeah. where you can uh, identify one spot in the brain that responds to, for example, a, a moral question. Huh. What we've learnt... Um, I think is that you know the brain is a complex network it's incredibly highly interconnected and so these functions are subserved by complex networks and in particular circuits in the brain and that's the focus of research from the center of excellence yeah. is to understand how inputs to the brain from sensory experiences vision or touch what's the pathways that the information travels through the brain until we make a behavioral output a decision and then a, an action. Okay. So what about functional magnetic resonance uh, imaging? Because that's, that's again, another modality again. Just explain what that actually means, what you actually do when you look at a functional MRI. Yeah, so functional MRI was invented nearly 20 years ago and it involves looking at the change in the oxygenation state of the blood in the brain when people use the oxygen that's... Yeah. Um, labelled to the, the red blood cells, yeah. they, they then uh, change the magnetic properties of the blood. So this technique enables us to map brain regions which are more active when people are doing particular tasks. Yeah. Can, could you combine a PET and functional magnetic would there be any utility absolutely yes <laughs> just sorry that's, i'm just trying to plan the next research project no no i'm, I'm listening <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm getting you paul it's uh it look it really is very exciting for us um and it's actually in a bigger context internationally hmm. some people may have heard of the obama brain initiative which uh, he's got President one obama yep. announced <laughs> a couple of years ago now um, and it's all about trying to go beyond the current generation of technologies. Mm. So what we're doing at the moment is combining existing technologies and that will still give us a great new opportunity. Mm. But the next step is really to measure these types of brain activities much, much more quickly. So these scans we're talking about can take you know, a few seconds at least and sometimes some minutes Whereas the brain, of course, works much, much faster than that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when, when, so w where do you think we are on the scale of um, complexity and understanding? When we look at a, a, you know, a single neuron could have 100,000 other interconnections. Right. Are we still very much sort of scratching the surface uh, trying to understand how this, this complex computer, this, this complex wiring of the brain, you know, how close are we actually to getting to really understanding what's going we're, on? We're still a, a great long way away from getting that level of understanding. There are some particular animals, um, C. elegans, for example, which only has, you know, a few thousand neurons. Yeah. Um, and some people now are getting close to mapping the interconnectedness of all those neurons and the functions that that particular yeah. worm can undertake. Yeah. So the human brain with, you know, 10 to the 12 neurons, 10 to the 15 uh, connections is miles away from being understood. It'll be way beyond our careers, Paul. Oh, what a shame. <laughs> <laughs> I must get onto that geritol. I need to live yeah. longer because I, I really want to... I'm going to hate dying before I know the answer to this. It's going to be one of those things that really offends me, uh, I've got to say. But um, in, in terms of 
where we are now. So we we actually do have a project together where we're mm. we're trying to understand the pattern of nervous system degeneration in amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, and right. uh, we're doing some pilot work to understand whether the motor cortex degenerates at the same time as uh, the the anterior horn cells in the spinal cord. Um, is is the would MRI PET again add add more information to that sort of level of understanding? Uh, well, at the moment we're looking at this <coughs> MRI technique called diffusion mm. MRI to map those corticospinal tracts mm. and look at the degeneration, and mm. then looking. So that's the white matter tracks of the brain or the, the mm. spinal cord. Um, that's where the, the cabling is. The cabling, exactly. Yeah. Yep. And, of course, PET scanning looks at function. It looks at the grey matter, mm. the neuronal cell mm. bodies themselves. Mm. So that's the two halves of the picture that we need to put together. So once we've got our first studies done, I think the, the PET side of it will be the second and, and critical step. Yeah. And in terms of uh, the centre that you, you also are connected to, you've got a, a beam coming from the, the synchrotron. Mm next door which is uh, very few places have that sort of connectivity in terms yeah. of brain imaging so i mean the center is well placed to do s- what sort of things do you use the synchrotron for? so the synchrotron beam line is a um an x-ray beam yeah and so it's more comparable to ct scanning although yeah. it's a very special form of that called phase contrast ct yeah we don't actually use it for brain scanning um the facility is more broad and 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 that beam together with the mri scanner looks at lung imaging and it's actually the world-leading group there um, with colleagues using both the synchrotron and the MRI scanner for right. imaging the lung. Right. And I was reading through your bio. So far, you've only, you've just, I think you just ticked over 50 million in research grants. <laughs> <laughs> but you're probably sounding from, you know, the type of, you know, this sort of machinery, this doesn't come cheap. The, that, these that's stuff, the case. it yeah. costs a lot of money. It does. You probably need about a billion to really rock on, <laughs> I suspect. Uh, President Obama's initiative is a billion plus. And yeah. We'd very much like to work with those people. Yeah. In the Australian context, though, we've had terrific support from particularly Victorian state government right. getting some of these uh, scanners available for research dedicated use. Right. Okay. And the federal government at the moment is sort of sitting on its hands, so hopefully they'll come to the How do we get so. them to sit off their hands? Um, we're looking actually at the research facilities and infrastructure being made available for industry as well, much right. more readily and openly. Yeah. And that aligns with the current Prime Minister's push. So we feel that's the right way forward. Right, Look, I could, I could talk to you for hours, possibly days, but uh, it might not make for good radio. <laughs> uh, but we really appreciate you coming in and sort of giving us a sort of a, this window really of a brave new frontier in, in imaging. And certainly, you know, for all the neurological disorders, this sort of imaging is going to be the first time that we're probably going to get a better understanding. Yeah, Alzheimer's absolutely. disease, it's really going to, to yeah. make a huge difference. Well, thank you very much, Paul. Lovely talking to you. And can I send a cheerio to my daughter, Stella, who had her 18th birthday yesterday? <laughs> you said again, night. Stella, happy birthday from the radiotherapy team. Um, so we're going to sign off uh, for today. We've, we've covered a lot of ground today. We've uh, we started off with good men. We've we've talked about the film falling down, and we've finished with this really interesting phase of uh, of imaging that's going to really help in terms of us understanding the biology and connectivity of the brain. But we'll be back next week with a whole fresh new approach to health and health issues. Uh, so why don't we listen in then? Bye.
Whenever I come home after a hard day's work, I love to listen to the sounds of Triple R. 102.7. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.